A very warm welcome to all our listeners. This is Radio Maria, and、um, this is our hour of credo, where we have a theological or biblical discussion. And、um, tonight we have the privilege of hearing from Father Nicholas Crow, who's going to be speaking to us about responding to God's call. Hello, Father Nicholas. Hello. And、um, tell us where are you calling from today? So right at this moment,、uh, I'm in Cambridge. I will be soon be moving to Oxford, but for this week,、uh, I'm still in Cambridge, still enjoying and being being here in the house at Blackfriars. Lovely. And、um, the topic of your talk tonight is, I imagine, it's about vocations. Is is that right? That's right. This is.、Um, Something、uh, it became something of an obsession for me, as I was vocations director of the English Dominicans for for five years.、Um, so over over that period, I, I thought quite long and hard about what do we mean when we use these words, vocation, discernment, and、um, what is a divine call? How do we respond well to it? So、um, uh, it, it's something I've thought a lot about,、um, and.、Um, I hope it will be interesting for people to 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 hear some reflections on it.、Hmm. Well, I certainly am looking forward to listening from my side. So I will hand over to you from for now on. So great,、go. thank you very much. So、um, I'd like to start really with with a book that was published in 2013 by the Benedictine monk Abbot Christopher Jamison,、okay. yep. who was.、Um, At that time, director of the National Office of Vocations here in England and Wales, and the book was called "The Disciples' Call: Theologies of Vocation from Scripture to the Present Day." And Abbot Christopher tells us in the introduction that his motivation was a desire to clarify a confusion that has emerged in the contemporary church around what we mean when we use the word vocation. Abbot Christopher's point is that whilst the idea that everyone has a vocation is now in wide circulation among British Catholics, especially those raised during or after the pontificate of Pope Saint John Paul II, it is still, in some respects, a relatively new idea. It's not so long ago that the language of vocation within the Church was largely restricted to those seeking to enter a seminary. Or a religious order, and I think if we're honest, most of us, if we hear that someone is discerning their vocation, would still assume that this person is thinking about becoming a priest or entering a religious order. Now, this problem, Abbot Christopher reflected, has been exacerbated by a lack. Of theological reflection in recent decades on the nature of a calling. Instead, vocations promoters, vocations directors, chaplains, pastors, youth workers, catechists, and so on, continually find themselves obliged to come up with their own theories in order to guide the young people in their charge. And this inevitably harms the quality of quality of advice and guidance offered to Catholics. Seeking to respond generously to God's call, so Abbot Christopher argued, what was needed is a is a common understanding of what we mean when we use the language of vocation, which can serve as a shared foundation for our efforts to establish what Pope Saint John Paul II called every Christian seeks to. Find their own call, seeks to respond to the call of Christ generously in their lives. Now, Jameson's book was of particular relevance to me, as for five years I served as the vocations director and promoter for the English province of the Dominican Order.、And、during this time, I had the privilege of listening to many men and women. From all over the country and beyond, especially young women, women speak speak to me about their sense of calling. And I was blessed to accompany many young people 
as they made generous vocational choices, offering their lives to God as religious or priests, or by making a gift of their lives through their marriage or their career or their volunteering in some way. And I learned much from the people that I worked with. I was greatly inspired in my own vocation as a Dominican friar and priest through these encounters. But at the same time, in the course of this work, I came to recognize the problem that Abbot Christopher was pointing to in his book. I came across a great confusion among the young women, men and women that I accompanied around what it means to be called and how we might recognize a divine vocation. And worse, I came across many people who had received or absorbed some quite unhealthy ideas about vocational discernment which had sucked the joy out of their relationship with God and turned their life of discipleship into a fearful and anguished puzzle to be solved. I came to agree with Abbot Christopher that a deeper theological reflection on the nature of a divine vocation is desperately needed to enrich the pastoral practice of the church. Now, an opportunity arose for me to make my own contribution to this project, when at the end of my time as vocations director, I was offered the opportunity to study for a license in moral theology at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. I wrote my license thesis on the theology of religious vocation, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, and attempted in this work to bring my own pastoral experience as vocations director into a dialogue with the teaching of St. Thomas, the great 13th century Dominican theologian and doctor of the church. In this series of, of talks on Radio Maria, I propose to share with you the fruit of some of that study. We're fortunate that St. Thomas' writings on vocation are extensive and well-developed thanks to his involvement in the bitter controversies around this question at the University of Paris in the 13th century. The polemical context of the debate inevitably means that St. Thomas's writing is almost exclusively focused on the religious life when he examines this subject. St. Thomas was a friar. He was writing for other friars. But it's my view that despite his narrow focus and the great distance between the church and the world of St. Thomas's day and our own contemporary situation, there are some basic principles that St. Thomas draws upon as he expounds his position, which I believe to be useful and applicable to the work of vocations promotion and direction today for all states of life, not just for religious life, not just for monks and nuns, friars, sisters, brothers. In essence, St. Thomas understands the religious life to be an intense embrace of our baptismal call to holiness. And this implies that whatever conclusions we draw as to the nature and manifestation of a religious vocation are likely to be analogously applicable to other ways of embracing the grace of Christian baptism, for example, the life of a priest or a married person. So whilst my focus in this series of talks will be the religious life, call to be a sister, a brother, a nun, a monk, a friar. I hope nevertheless to indicate the broad outlines of how a vocation to other states of life might be understood within St. Thomas's vision. So to that end, this series will be based around four basic movements. First, we'll consider the goal of any vocation, which is the goal of the Christian life, the vision of God in heaven. We'll consider how the various states of life in the church, lay, consecrated and ordained, are ordered to that end. Second, we'll ponder the mystery of how a divine call is communicated to human beings. And third, we will think about the human response that can inhibit or facilitate a positive response to the summons of God and the role that human freedom and choice plays in a divine vocation. This will be the longest section of our meditations. And fourth, we will consider the role 
of the Christian community in nurturing and ultimately verifying a person's sense of God's call in their life. Finally, we will conclude with some reflections on the implications of this study for vocations, promotion and direction today. So with this introduction complete, we're now ready to move on to the notion of vocation itself, beginning with an examination of the scriptures. But before that, I'll let you pause and rest and we will have some music. Thank you so much, Father Nicholas. We have Miserere Medeus from Allegri.
You are listening to Credo and we are with Father Nicholas Crow, who is talking about how to respond to God's call. Back over to you, Father Nicholas. Thank you very much. So welcome back. We've just introduced the subject um, and I've outlined the, the series, uh, how this series is going to develop and why I think it matters. And now we're going to turn to the scriptures and what the word of God reveals to us about the nature of a divine call. You might know already that our English word vocation comes from the Latin vocat, which means he or she calls. So when we use this word vocation, we are talking about a call from God. God is calling us, summoning us from A to B. And if there's one point that I absolutely want to hammer home in this series, it is that everyone is called by God because everyone is summoned to share God's life in the perfect happiness of heaven. We are called to move from where we are now into the happiness of God's kingdom. And everyone needs to take this call of Christ in their lives seriously. If the gospel that we preach is true, then the only rational choice open to us is to respond positively to Jesus's call. If what we believe as Christians is true, we must strive to be great saints. Nothing else will do. We are called to greatness, and that greatness is a greatness of the love in the love of God. We are called to a full-blooded love of God. This is our vocation. So properly speaking, when we say that someone has a vocation, we mean, first of all, that they are called to follow Jesus on a pilgrimage through this world into the kingdom of heaven. And when we hear this word vocation, the primary meaning in our minds should be a call to be disciples of Jesus, men and women who learn from Jesus in order to live like Jesus. And this primary dimension of our vocation is universal to all the baptized. So at the most fundamental level, I know the vocation of everyone listening to this broadcast. I know God's plan for your life in its broadest outlines. You are called to live in friendship with God in this life and to enjoy eternal happiness with God forever in the next. You are called to follow Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. You are called to embrace the grace given to you at baptism. This is your vocation. And in some respects, the key text for St. Thomas is thinking about vocation is Romans 8.30, where this idea is most powerfully articulated. St. Paul declares, those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our call is the concrete working out in our lives of our predestination, which culminates in glory. Now, even a cursory reading of the New Testament is enough to make clear that embracing our baptismal vocation is a very concrete affair. Discipleship is grounded in very particular contexts and situations. Our Christian apprenticeship is embedded, embedded in a personalized web of human relationships into which we are called to extend the life and mission of Christ. So once we have embraced our baptismal vocation and set out as disciples of Jesus, we need at some point to root ourselves in relationships and contexts that facilitate rather than thwart the life of love of God and love of neighbour that Jesus asks of us and the Holy Spirit makes possible for us. The key question is, which environment or context is most likely to help me to become a saint? If holiness, a deep love of God, really is my priority, where do I need to root myself? This brings us to the second dimension of our understanding of what it means to have a vocation, what is usually described 
as our state in life. And this again is a three-dimensional concept. When we read through the Gospels, we see straight away that Jesus summons men and women to become his disciples in three very different ways. In other words, we can see three different kinds of call. First of all, we find people being called by Jesus to be his disciples, to be his friends, to be saints, but to stay with their families and remain in their homes, remain in their jobs. Thinking particularly of people like Martha and Mary and Lazarus, some of Jesus's closest friends. Others, such as whoever it was who provided the room at which the Last Supper was eaten, supported the mission, they supported the mission practically by providing Jesus with resources and spaces he needed. Others, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took care of his body after his crucifixion and during his life tried to support him politically. We might also think of the man who was possessed with a legion of demons who passionately wanted to follow Jesus after he was set free from their oppression, but was told to remain where he was. And that man, we are told, preached to the Decapolis region. These people were all Jesus' disciples. They were all called to support and further his mission. But they were not called to follow him in the immediate sense, in that they were not called to physically to walk around Palestine after him. They were not called to live exactly the same kind of life that Jesus lived, in the very direct sense of abandoning everything that they had and quite literally following Jesus as he went preaching and healing and exercising. So there is an invitation in the New Testament, a call to be a disciple, to be a saint, where you are, in your home, in your job, with your family. And after Pentecost, this group of disciples became by far the largest group in the church. We see in this group the beginnings of the lay vocation. Now, the lay vocation can, of course, be subdivided into a call to married life and a call to remain as a single lay person. I'll go into a little more detail about this next week, but for the moment, I just want to note that the first context in which we might live out our baptismal call is the lay vocation, the call to serve Jesus and support his mission in the context of our families and our careers. The second kind of disciple, the second kind of call, was to the men and women who were invited by Jesus to actually follow him on his journeys around the Holy Land. Men and women who were invited to give up their family life, to give up their jobs, to leave their possessions behind in order to live with Jesus, to go where he went, to listen to Jesus for longer and more attentively, to work alongside him more closely, doing the same kinds of things he did. Men and women who were called to live like Jesus and with Jesus. We see in this second kind of call, a second way of being a disciple, the beginnings of the religious life. I'm thinking, for example, of the 72 who were sent out to preach, or the women who walked with Jesus and took care of his needs. Now, the assumption tends to be that this intimacy with God that these disciples actually lived with Jesus were blessed with, this opportunity to dwell in the love and peace of Jesus' presence had a purifying effect on those that were close to him to such an extent that the life they were living itself transformed their hearts and gradually centred their lives and the meaning of their lives on Jesus himself. This is a big theme in lots of the literature that's aimed specifically at monks and nuns. The aim of the religious life is to be centred on Christ and centred on living like Christ. And the structure of the life of a monastery or a convent should be an education in that kind of living. We can think of the great religious rules, such as the rule of St. Benedict, for an example, 
as an embedding of gospel principles into a way of life such that living the life faithfully is itself an education and an immersion in the gospel. Sometimes if you read older books on the religious life, you'll see it described as a higher way. We don't tend to use this language now because it was systematically misunderstood. People thought that when religious life was described as a higher way, it meant that religious thought they were higher people or more perfect people. But that's almost exactly wrong. Instead, when religious life was described as a higher way, it simply means that in, we're simply using that language in more or less the same way that we describe some roads as being highways. A highway is straight and wide so that you can drive fast. You can make the same journey on a B road. In fact, it might be a more pleasant drive. But there's a higher chance that something might hold you up on a B road that is not your fault. It might be a tractor holding you up, for example, or a cow. Contrast the highway, for the most part, is an easier road. So we can think of the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience as being like tools that clear the road before us of obstacles to discipleship. Doesn't mean that monks and nuns are always making the best use of these tools. And indeed, it's only too obvious that, to stretch my analogy to breaking point, many monks and nuns are wasting their time in service stations drinking coffee or driving fast in the wrong direction. But for those that use the tools well and want to persevere on their journey of discipleship, poverty, chastity, and obedience, the religious life, should be a more direct road. Now, there's an obvious question that arises at this point. A single lay person is celibate. They may voluntarily choose to be poor for the sake of the kingdom and practice obedience to the teachings of the church and perhaps a spiritual director. Indeed, to some extent, all Christians are supposed to incorporate the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity and obedience into their life in some manner, in a manner that's appropriate to their circumstances. So what's the difference between a single layperson who has voluntarily decided to practice the evangelical counsels and the life of a religious? And the answer is that a religious life is a form of consecrated life. So what does that mean? I always find it difficult to articulate the difference that consecration makes in a person's life. And yet I think at a profoundly visceral level, we know very well what we mean. Think about the difference, for example, between a chalice and a cup or mug or glass that you might find in your kitchen. We would not dream of making a cup of tea and serving it in a chalice or serving a glass of wine in a chalice at our Sunday lunch. Why not? Because this chalice has been consecrated to God. It belongs to God now. It has been moved from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of, the, of heaven, from the world of the profane to the world of, of the sacred. Because this chalice now belongs to another world, now belongs to God, there are some things that are no longer appropriate for it. Now, the same is broadly true when it comes to the consecration of people. When someone takes public vows in a religious order or another form of consecrated life, they are consecrated to God. They belong to God. The life of a religious order then should be a sign of another world, a sign of the kingdom of heaven on earth. In some ways, I think this is easier for religious sisters to articulate. The sisters often talk about being brides of Christ, married to God. We all understand that when a person marries, there are ways of behaving around the opposite sex that no longer become appropriate, even if they're innocent. Because if we're married, we belong to another. Now, as husband and wife belong to one another in a distinctive manner, the religious belongs to God 
the consecrated person, belongs to God in a distinctive manner. And as the marriage bond between a couple changes both the meaning of their lives and what is appropriate in terms of their mode of life and behaviour, so religious consecration changes the meaning of our lives and what is appropriate in terms of our manner of life. On this basis, Pope St John Paul II concluded that the proper sphere of action for a lay vocation is the world, but for a consecrated person, the proper sphere of action is the kingdom of heaven. The religious is supposed to be a sign of a different way of living, of different values. We're supposed to be striving to live the life of heaven here on earth. Now, just as we could subdivide the lay vocation into a married state and a single state, so we can subdivide the religious life and the consecrated life more generally. There are many different forms of consecrated life. And again, we will talk about this next week. For now, it's sufficient to note that just as one context in which our Christian discipleship can be lived out is the lay vocation, the call to serve Jesus from where we are in our work and our families, a second call to discipleship is the call to leave everything to follow Jesus. And this is the root of the religious life and the consecrated life more broadly. This brings us to the third and final call of what we describe as the states of life that we find in the New Testament. It seems that the group of people that had left everything to follow Jesus may at times have actually been quite large. It's the impression we get in Luke's gospel, for example. From this largish group, Jesus chooses his inner circle. In Luke chapter 6, we read, In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So from a crowd of disciples, he chose twelve, who would be called to represent him in the most direct sense of not just living like Jesus and doing the kinds of things that he did, but in being so powerfully conformed to Jesus by grace that after the resurrection, they could act sacramentally in his person. In this way, the twelve apostles were so configured to Christ that they could become the centre and the source of unity of the body of Christ on earth after the resurrection, as Jesus had been the centre of the community of disciples during his earthly ministry. The twelve apostles, whose successors are of course the bishops, are called to represent the whole Christ and do so when they act sacramentally. The priest is a limb of the bishop. The deacon is a representative of the bishop. So the fullness of the priesthood resides in the bishop, who stands in the place of Christ as the point of unity in the diocese, as Jesus stood at the centre of the first Christian community and was its point of unity. There is a sense then that a parish priest, a diocesan priest, as a limb of the bishop, is called to represent Christ in a more holistic way than a consecrated person or a lay person. Whereas a lay person or a consecrated person can represent particular aspects of Jesus's life and ministry according to their gifts, a priest, when acting in persona Christi, represents the whole of Christ. And this wholeness spills out into his whole ministry. On one level, the job of a parish priest is, in a certain sense, to be all things to all men and women. As St. Paul puts it, the parish priest has the responsibility to care for his flock, whoever they may be, and whatever they may throw at him. So we've now outlined two levels of our understanding of a divine call in the scriptures. First, there's our baptismal call to holiness perfect happiness of heaven. Second, there's the context in which we live out that baptismal call, our state of life. And we've outlined three, a lay vocation, a consecrated vocation, and a religious vocation. Now we're going to have a short interlude before we move on to the third and often the most neglected, what God is asking of me today.
Thank you so much, Father Nicholas. I would just like to open the phone line if anyone has a question today. Please don't hesitate to give us a ring. The number is 01-223-375-564-01-223-375-564. Father Nicholas would be delighted to take your question or your thoughts this afternoon. And this is If Ye Love Me. This is Radio Maria and Credo, and we are joined by Father Nicholas Crow, prior of Blackfriars in Oxford. Back over to you, Father Nicholas, for your for your final thoughts today on uh, responding to God's call. Thank you very much. So we've um, we've looked already this um, this evening at uh, the first two dimensions of a divine call that we see in the scriptures. The first is the call to follow Christ. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8.30, our baptismal vocation to be, live in friendship with God in this life and enjoy eternal happiness with God in the next. And we've also looked at the biblical roots for a secondary level of vocation, which is our state of life, the context in which we live out this primary baptismal call, the network of relationships that we root ourselves in, in order to love God and love and love neighbour, the lay state, consecrated life, the ordained life. Now we're going to move on to the third dimension, which is the most neglected, and this gets is this level of vocation is the most neglected. It's also the most specific because it refers to the day-to-day -day reality of living as a disciple here and now, striving for God's will to be done in my life today as it is in heaven. And this third dimension of vocation embraces our personal lives, our professional lives, our natural gifts, our supernatural gifts. 
It focuses on our response to the call of Christ to build up his kingdom in this time and in this place. And so this third dimension of our vocation is the most fluid. It requires daily attentiveness to the word of God in prayer because the world does not stand still. We do not stand still. We change, we grow older, and we find as the seasons of our life in discipleship change, what is asked of us change. We find ourselves in new situations where the command of love makes new demands on us. This means that we can never think of our vocation as being something static. does not matter if we are at the end of our journey with Christ or at the beginning. It doesn't matter if we've made a commitment to a particular state of life, such as marriage or the priesthood, or if we're still open to making that kind of choice. Every day God calls. Every day God invites us further down the road of discipleship into his love. And so every day we must open our ears as disciples and resist the hardness of heart that deflects God's call. I think it's fair to say that this third level of vocation is the most neglected in the church today. Catholics tend to obsess about the second dimension, the state of life question. Should I be a nun? Should I, should I get married? That kind of question. It's quite rare to find Catholics prayerfully exploring how they can use their scientific knowledge to serve the church, for example, or their legal expertise, or their musical talent, or their management experience, and so on, to the service of God. And outside of the charismatic renewal, the whole area of charismatic gifts, by which we mean gifts given to a person, not for their own sanctification, but to aid the sanctification of others, that's almost ignored. And this is a problem. Partly because it means that so many gifts and talents are wasted and not directed towards building up God's kingdom. And partly because it seems to be the case that when people focus on the big picture of vocation, a primary call to love, serve and honour God, and at the same time take seriously this third level of vocation, what God is asking of me today, then the rest of their lives often seems to fall into place, at least vocationally speaking. My instinct is that if people start to take their baptismal vocation seriously and embark on the adventure that is a life lived as a, an apprentice of Jesus, and if they persevere in that journey through a deep meditation and digestion of Jesus' teaching and try to put it into practice, through the daily effort to respond positively to God's summons to love in this time and in this place, the daily labour of translating Jesus' teaching into concrete choices for today, then the second level of our vocation, the choice to become a priest or a religious or to get married, the sustaining of a priestly life or a religious life or a marriage, will largely look after itself. My idea is not original or, or complicated, simply that if people get today right, tomorrow will work itself out. We are focused every day on loving God and translating that love into action as faithful disciples then we can trust our instincts when it comes to our decisions in life and trust that God will take what we offer him and it will work out for the best, however strange that um, strange that may seem to us now from our limited perspective. I think for the moment I will um, leave this um, introduction there. Just to recap, we've talked about the primary level of vocation being our baptismal call to love, serve and honour God. And this is the first meaning of the word of vocation, 
that should be in our minds when we when we hear this word used. We are all called to be disciples, to follow Christ on a pilgrimage into the kingdom of heaven. The secondary states, the second level of vocation, are the states of life that we commit to in living out this baptismal call. Lay state, consecrated life, ordained ministry. It's in these network of relationships that we commit to and root ourselves in that we live out our call and our life as disciples. And that call is lived out every day. That's the third level of vocation. What is God asking of me today? What does the law of love require of me today? What does moving forward into the love of God on the path of discipleship mean for me today? And if we're striving today to walk with Jesus, to be open to his spirit leading us, into the joy of the kingdom, then we can be at peace because in our efforts to love God, love neighbor, we will be carried in the love of God to where we need to be. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, um, Father Nicholas, for such practical wisdom. Uh, what's coming to mind is, oh, that today you would listen to his voice and you're showing us uh, wonderfully how to put that into practice. I do have a caller with a question. I would just like to give out the number in case anyone else has a question. We still have a few minutes. Don't hesitate to call in. The number is 01223375564. And I have Tim on the line. Tim, you're through to Father Nicholas. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Father Nicholas, for wonderful talk. Um, I particularly appreciated what you said about the um, misconception around the higher calling of their religious life and um, how that that word has been misunderstood. And um, I I had kind of meditated on this myself and wondered if perhaps um, a, a different analogy um, also is helpful of looking at different parts in a choir, and you talk about there being lower parts and higher parts, um, but not necessarily meaning uh, better parts or worse parts. And that was a way that I had used to understand the difference in calling. Um, do you think that that can also be applicable um, in a sort of, as an analogy for understanding what, what is meant by higher and lower in terms of calling? Yeah, I um, I think the, the what's lovely about that image is is that it complements um, so nicely with St Paul's image of of the church as being a body, mm -hmm. and in which all human body is made up of so many organs which work together. And um, I think the first thing we need to really underscore whenever we talk about different states of life is that they're not in competition and that if I honor marriage, for example, I'm not doing down religious life. And if I um, praise religious life, I'm not um, criticizing the priesthood. Do you say what I mean? To, mm. So to, yeah. to, to honor one vocation is to, to honor all because we, we are a body. We're all united in the love of Christ. I think um, the, um, so that's, um, so that's one aspect of it. At the same time, I think we do need to um, draw attention to the, uh, the blessings of each particular state of life is the way I would, um, I would describe it. Um, to enable people to to make a good choice vocationally speaking um and uh i think perhaps um the the language of higher way was a a clumsy effort to to describe the the blessings inherent in living in a religious community so as i always say to people i don't have to make time for prayer it's done for me my life is the structure of my life carves out for prayer. I don't need to 
make an effort to find opportunities to serve God. Opportunities to serve God are quite literally ringing my doorbell. Do you, do you see what I mean? So there, there, are, there are certain blessings attached to the religious life which aid the life of Christian discipleship if you if you use them well. And I think that's what the, the language of highways is clumsily trying to 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 capture and and in many sense ways that that kind of the image of a choir is is a is a lovely way of complementing that because um the church is a body and it needs every limb thank you thank you very much um tim for your call father nicholas would you like to finish today's program with a prayer certainly certainly thank you. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, Lord God, for the gift of your love. We thank you for summoning us to share in your life. And we pray for an ever greater outpouring of your blessings upon the church. That all men and women may see their path and have the courage and strength to run in that way of salvation, that they may know the full joy of your presence, beginning now and coming to fulfillment in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nicholas, and we very much look forward to being with you at the same time again next week. Thank you very much. <laughs>